Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about growing vital relationships through conversations that matter. My first guest is Celeste Headley. She's an award-winning journalist, professional speaker, and author of Heard Mentality, and we need to talk how to have conversations that matter. Celeste TEDx Talk, sharing 10 ways to have a better conversation, has over 20 million total views to date, and she's here with me to talk, talk, and talk some more. Hi, Celeste. Thanks for joining me this morning. Hi. Good to be with you. Let's talk about the inspiration behind writing We Need to Talk. There were multiple inspirations. One of them was that I've been a journalist for a long time, and so I am seeing up close the complete devolution of our political conversations on Capitol Hill and around the country. So that's one where I was noticing that people were arguing because they weren't actually conversing with another. But the immediate inspiration was a really important conversation I needed to have at my workplace about uh, bullying and harassment, and um, I thought it was going to go well, I should, it should have. I'm literally a professional conversationalist. <laughs> um, and it, and it didn't, it went completely wrong. And so I had to really ask myself some tough questions about what I did or didn't do and what it was that I needed to learn. And that sort of got me down the research path. It's very interesting. You talk about the political conversation and it seems to me in, in my own experience in this climate that we're living in, that you bring that up at a dinner table and it can cause World War Three. Yeah, you know, people try to avoid these conversations because they're afraid of argument. And I, I get that because people at this point are very entrenched. But, you know, a big reason for that is that people are not actually talking about politics. They're, I mean, let me put that another way. They're talking about politics and that's it. They're not listening. You know, a conversation requires both the talking and the listening, which means that people aren't having conversations about politics. They're just talking. One more thing I would say is that by avoiding these conversations, we're making it worse. You know, eight out of 10 couples, I mean, if, if couples who argue more are more likely to be happy in their marriages, if they have constructive arguments. Um, and so we have to stop avoiding conflict. Yes. This is the thing that's really interesting is that argument is not necessarily a bad thing. If you're arguing about a point and not impugning the other person, like the other person is not wrong or bad because they have a position different from our own, the argument can actually be quite stimulating and satisfying. 
Yeah. And that's actually one of the ways that you can eventually get a new perspective on things, right? Is because someone brings something up and maybe in that moment you don't take it seriously, but it will stick with you and you'll think about it and you'll you'll ruminate on it in the weeks ahead and it might change your perspective. You, you Of course, you have to learn how to have those conversations, those arguments productively, but that's what we're not doing. You know, an interesting statistic is that fewer than one in five people think that they're generally to blame when a conversation goes bad. So that math doesn't work. I mean, we all get that, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like clearly that is incorrect, but we don't, we, when we have an argument, we tend to blame it on the other person. Oh, my uncle is a right winger. Oh, my, my niece is a Bernie Sanders lib whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And we ask questions that cast judgment on people instead of judging ideas. So we'll ask questions like, how could you believe that? Why can't you understand that? Instead of things like what makes you feel that way or what, what led you to this? Why, you know, what are your sources? Explain blah, 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 blah. So we have to start learn. You have to learn how to, to converse about ideas, not people's character. You know, when you say that, it makes me think of when I was a kid in in junior high and high school, we had debate club, right? That was something that was very popular back in the day. I don't know that it is presently. So we learned how to do this. Yeah. You have to be careful with debate, I would say, because a true conversation is not a debate. I mean, for obvious reasons, you were in debate club. Yes. You know that a debate is not a conversation. That's trying to win. And you can't win a conversation. Yeah. But the concept of discussing ideas themselves and taking the personality out of it, that's a really important one. Yes. To depersonalize the idea and engage in a discourse. And I would argue that it's really about, it speaks to the heart of our state of relationship today, particularly in the United States, where we're not leaning into these daily conversations. We'd rather be leaning into our digital devices because they don't talk back and they make us feel good really quickly. And we don't have to take the time to really speak to somebody and hear what they have to say, which means that we have to shut up. Yeah. And and sadly, a lot of that has to do with our dopamine addiction. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) yeah, which is not entirely our fault. I mean, the software designers who created Instagram and Snapchat and all of even email, every time you check your email inbox, you get a shot of dopamine. Dopamine is not great for you, obviously. There's a reason they call it the addiction hormone. It also makes you a worse person. Like if you look at the research on dopamine, it it makes you meaner and more irritable. It's the kind of uh, neurotransmitter that makes you say, this feels good and I need more, right? It makes you less likely to share, less likely to feel empathy, as opposed to like serotonin, oxytocin. I don't mean to get into all the neurology of it, but... No, it's important. (laughs) The neurology is absolutely important. Yeah. And, and because we're addicted to that little shot, those constant shots of dopamine, every time we refresh our Facebook feed, it is keeping us from those conversations and those in-person interactions that actually are better for you, that give you the oxytocin, the mommy's hug. Yeah, <laughs> the, the connection, the warm yeah, fuzzies. And, 
And the serotonin, which activates your prefrontal cortex, the executive decision-making part of the brain, you know, that makes you a better person, that makes you say, oh, that felt good, and I feel good, that makes you more likely to share. Like, we are not engaging in those activities that actually make us better people. Yeah. <laughs> and make us healthier. So yeah. And it's a it's a thorny problem because not only is that the way the society is going, not only is it like cool and trendy to be an introvert at this point, but our, our electronics are working against us. They're using the slot machine model to keep us refreshing those feeds. And so it's difficult. Did you see that sixty minutes episode on brain hacking? No. Oh, I did not. It's it's very interesting because they had a guy that was a former employee of Google who went off and now does consulting work about this very thing. You know that 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 the developers of these programs and the electronic gizmos that they are intentionally as you said hacking into our brains to make us addicted so we use more buy more and you know are not really engaging in sort of that requirement of interpersonal connection, which makes us feel ultimately more happy. Yeah, I think you're talking about Tristan Harris, maybe. I think you're who, right. Yeah, <laughs> I who couldn't has think been, of the guy's name. <laughs> who has been on the forefront of this um, conversation about the ethics of our software and the ethics of our technology. And I think probably one of the most powerful arguments in this particular field is the, is the gigantic number of IT professionals who don't let their kids use smartphones and tablets. Yeah, (laughs) there's a huge number of them who Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, I mean, they restrict their kids from using smartphones, from using social media. I mean, many of them have a complete ban on that stuff in their own homes. And that should tell you something. You know, if you go to a restaurant and the chef says, here's your dinners. Oh, no, I would never serve this to my family. Like, that's a warning. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I agree. And so what do we do about it? How do we engage in conversations? How do we use your model and sort of help us rewire our brains to learn to sit back down and, and look in someone's eyes and talk? So, I mean, the, the first thing I would suggest is to start really small. And so the great thing about this whole thing is that human beings, our biology and our neurology is set up to enjoy conversations with other human beings in almost every circumstance. So it will be (laughs) self-rewarding if you start little. So if you start you know, having a little chat with your Uber driver or with just a really short chat with your barista or your grocery store clerk. The reason why that's great is because number one, you know, it's time limited. You don't have to have any fear of getting called, you know, stuck in a conversation that you want to get out of. And they have to be nice to you. Like that's literally their job is to be polite and nice. So there's no danger And you can walk away in 90 seconds and your brain will be flush with serotonin. You'll feel good. And most likely, if you start to do that on a daily basis, it will become a really lovely, self-rewarding practice. And then you can get started. The other thing I would say is stop uh, rejecting phone calls. So one of the rules I have is that I only email or text back and forth three times. And then I say, when do you have five minutes? Let me get you on the phone. Love this. This is, yeah. a, this is good because our phones are not ringing anymore. 
<laughs> yeah, and when they do ring, we're like, who's calling me? <laughs> and you reject it. And then sometimes, you know, it's funny. I was just noticing yesterday a call came in and I was already on the other line. And so I wanted to send one of those texts that says, I'll call you back. But the first choice, you know, they give you an automatic reply to send. Yeah. But the first choice is, can you text me? <laughs> Oh, I need to read that. Never paid attention to that. Number one choice. And I was like, are you kidding me? Come on now. So three times back and forth. After the third one, whatever it is, you're not going to settle it over texting or email. So get on the phone. And I think this is also generational. Like uh, we have a lot of young team members over here and a lot and they will not pick up the phone. And I'm like, you, this is a phone. This is, it requires a phone business, you know, to make contact with guests, to produce the show. You actually have to engage. It's really important, you know? Yeah. I'm, and, you know, there's a couple things going on here. So let me say the first thing about millennials and iGen now is coming forward. iGen is the one after millennials. And they call them that because they've had iPhones almost since birth. So number one, millennials are just as socially adept as any other generation. This idea that millennials are socially awkward or more socially awkward is incorrect. I would also say that scientific research shows millennials are better listeners than baby boomers, for example. Do share more. I'm curious as to the why. We don't really know the why, <laughs> but that, that was not part of the study. It was just to see who actually listened more carefully and retained more information. And in that particular case, it was the millennials. They listened better. They listened more closely. They remembered more. We can make guesses. Well, they right? have younger brains. They have, you know, <laughs> so that's part of it. <laughs> well, I, I mean, personally, I think that the biggest barrier to listening is always that how quickly you stop listening in order to come up with your response. That's the most common barrier to listening. So I think that an older person is probably more likely to think they know what the other person is going to say or that they've heard it before Uh or that they're not interested. And so they probably listen to a very short period of time and then know what they're going to say in response and are just waiting for the other person to stop talking so they can respond. And is that really presence? It is not. Yeah. Because, I mean, when I went to school for psychology, we actually had, there was coursework done on the art of listening because it is, it is a skill. And, you know, when you're thinking about your response while someone's talking, you're not listening. Oh, absolutely. At all. And you, as you mentioned, you are not fully present. What that basically means is that you could have that conversation and it wouldn't change if the other person left. (laughs) It It means you're just ready to educate other people and tell them about your own thoughts. But you will learn nothing from what you're going to say. You already know all of that. So if you're going to learn, you have to listen to the other person. So that, I mean, that's the first thing. The other thing I might say about your staff that is, I assuming millennials or iGen that want to email all the time is there's this delusion that we think that email and texting are more efficient. And that could not be more wrong. 
That is just 180 degrees away from the truth. Email and texting are only more efficient in a very limited number of circumstances. And they're always straightforward information. We're going to need to take a break. To learn more, please visit CelesteHeadley.com on Twitter at Celeste Headley. On Facebook, she is at Celeste period Headley. And on Instagram, Celeste Headley. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Hang on just a minute here. Before we take that break, I want to chat with you about the important intersection of fashion and comfort. As a busy, style-conscious professional, I always want to look my best, whether I'm meeting with clients, running errands, or on the road traveling. And that's why today's episode sponsor, Beta Brand, hits that mark spot on with dress pant yoga pants. I'm a huge fan of Beta Brand's designer bottoms that come in dozens of styles and colors. These pants are super comfy, perfectly stretchy, and stay wrinkle-free. And the best part is they perform well and make my backside look great. I've got several pairs of these dream boats. Dress pant yoga pants have all the style of traditional dress pants, plus all the flexibility and comfort of your favorite yoga wear. Whatever your style, Beta Brand has pants to match. Dress pant yoga pants come in boot cut, straight leg, skinny cropped, and more. And right now, our listeners can get 20% off their first order when you go to betabrand.com slash happiness. That's 20% off your first order at betabrand.com slash happiness. Millions of women agree that these are the most comfortable pants you'll ever wear to work. Go to betabrand.com slash happiness for 20% off. Now here comes the break. We'll be right back, and that is a guarantee. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we are back. Let's rejoin the conversation with Celeste Headley. We're talking about learning to grow vital relationships through conversations that matter. Celeste, before the break, we were talking about the inefficiency of emailing. Yeah, and it's, you know, I get that people feel like it's more efficient, but here's why that's a delusion. The reason you feel it's more efficient is because when you're writing an email, that is a solo activity. The email feels clear to you because you are the only person reading it. When you're in a conversation and you're explaining something to someone, (laughs) you see them confused, right? You notice when they don't understand. You notice when they don't agree. You can see that. That all goes away in email, but that doesn't make the email more clear. (laughs) Right. So... um, We have decades of research into email, and we know definitively that its effectiveness is quite limited. If it's anything other than totally straightforward information, lists, agendas, anything like that, email is less efficient than talking to someone on the phone or in person. And in fact, when you're using email, you are less likely to negotiate, you are less likely to cooperate, you are more likely to escalate conflict. So, yeah, you have to, you know, this is one thing I come in con, you know, with all the time with, I've I've a younger, had a younger staff also, and they would send me emails from 15 feet outside my door. And I would lean out the door and say, I deleted that. 
like, what are you doing? <laughs> Come to Come my here. office. Yes. <laughs> Talk to me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So. Yeah. Now it's less of a problem because we've had the conversation and they get it and they see that it works better. You know, when you actually make contact, you know, ET phones home, you, you know, you, you're getting something <laughs> and you're resolving quickly. And I find that when I'm, I'm, cause I'm having more phone conversations now too, that uh, I get to learn about the people that I work with and I engage with that I might not have known otherwise. Yeah. And, you know, this is, you know, I hate to bring it back to neurology, but I am kind of a geek at this point. There is all kinds of information being transmitted through the sound of a voice that we cannot replicate through any other method. So, I mean, imagine a time when you called a friend and they said, hello, and you immediately say, what's wrong? Like, yeah. that's how quickly information is transmitted through the sound of a voice. And we have studied this. There's a, there's a phenomenon called neurocoupling that they, the, the research into that began at Princeton, in which they found that when people are listening in an engaged way to somebody talking about their own lives, their brain waves sync up. They're, the brain waves of the listener and the speaker begin to move in exact sync. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. So there's this empathic bond that is created through the sound of the voice and the, and the pair of ears that cannot be replaced by texting or emailing or emojis. And that is because we have millennia of evolution behind us that designed us to be the most incredible communicators and collaborators on the planet using the human voice. That is our evolutionary superpower. So I'm, I'm not always clear on why we keep coming up with new ways to replace the one thing we do better than any other species. Like, yeah. this is it. So why are we dumping it? It's like Michael Jordan deciding to leave basketball and become a baseball player. Like, who does that? This is what you do well. <laughs> Stop not doing it. Well, we should be polishing this, you know, yeah, as opposed absolutely. to our, our other communication techniques. What are some other things that we should be doing? Some other, there's so many of them. First of all, uh, we need to find time during the day to be away from your cell phone and your tablet, just to be away. I don't care if it's only, if it starts out being only 10 minutes, but there are people who can't even take a walk around their block without the cell phone in their hand. Yes. And, <laughs> yeah. And we don't realize the effect that that's having on your brain. Even if you're not consciously thinking about that phone, your brain is engaged with that phone all the time that it's, it's visible or in your hand. So it's part of the reason people begin to feel exhausted and stressed. It's because the presence of that phone is stressing your cognitive abilities. Yeah. So you have to walk away from it if you truly want to give yourself a break and relax. And it's a training thing because I, I work in addiction and trauma recovery, as I mentioned to you, and um, to separate a, a client in early recovery from his or her phone, they are you're forcing a withdrawal that is probably as powerful as the substance that they're trying to detox from. And they don't understand the why and they get really irritable. They think I'm a witch. I said, no, no, I'm trying to help you reprogram your brain. I really don't care about the phone, but I do care about your response that it's so strong that to put it down to go for a walk for an hour is a challenge. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And there are people like, I think it's like one in five people admit to checking their phone while they're having sex. What? Uh, well, yeah. Well, well, <laughs> yeah. One, in, one in five admit to checking it while they're in the shower. And like a good portion of people sleep literally with the phone in their hands. Now you have to think about this for a second. Your brain is actively engaged with that phone. Like it is thinking about that phone. And as you know, working with addiction as you, as you all have, the brain the whole time, even the possibility that a notification might come in means your brain is preparing for that. It is in fight or flight mode. It is engaging the amygdala, right, to try and react to something that may come in. So if you're sitting there trying to sleep and actually get rest with the phone in your hand, I don't even know how that would work. It doesn't work. You are yeah. never resting. Yeah. It's the disconnect to connect. What you're, is what you're suggesting is we need to, we need to learn to self-regulate with the phones. We need to engage more with people that we care, care about and work with. And I love your suggestion about just having a conversation with your barista or your Uber driver yeah. to a two or three minute conversation and get the reward circuit of the brain fired up to receive pleasure from that. Absolutely. And you will find that you will if you start doing that, you will feel better. <laughs> I mean, with lots of caveats, <laughs> depending on what's going on in your life. But it's because that causes serotonin to go into your brain, because serotonin is a cerebral neurotransmitter that relaxes you, that brings pleasure. Yeah, you're going to feel a little better. You know, it's interesting. They did a research study in which they had, they put a huge group of girls through a very stressful thing. They had them uh, solving math problems in front of an audience. And afterward, they had their mother's contact. Well, one gr group, the control group got, had no contact from their mothers afterward. So as soon as they got off stage, as you can imagine, their cortisol levels were through the roof. They were very stressed. One group got a text from their mom one group got a phone call from their mother and another one, the mom was actually there to greet them. So the group that got both a phone call or saw their mother in person, their cortisol level dropped almost immediately, like significant amounts. They relaxed. The ones who had a text from their mother, there was no difference for them in their level of stress than the ones who didn't had no contact at all. Zero. The text had zero effect. Wow. And it does make sense. I mean, ultimately, it goes back to that, you know, being hardwired for the connection and the necessity for us to be connected in order to be happy, in order to be healthy, in order to perform optimally. Yeah, absolutely. Think about this in terms of an apology, for example. I mean, you must come up against this all the time. People send email apologies because it's easier for them but we know neurologically speaking that, that that apology never activates, that's written, never activates the compassion center of their brain, never begins the entire process that leads to forgiveness and moving on, ever. Yeah. <laughs> it's spitting in the wind. So the conversation is really about the voice. One of the things that I hear you saying is it's actually the tone, it's the attitude, it's the presentation, it's the engagement because we're all having a zillion conversations all day long in various forms through technology. But you're saying that it's the actual speech is a huge part of this. Yeah. And I would actually argue that we're not having conversations. I think we're just talking. I think in, <laughs> yeah. I think unless you have a, a, a pair of 
it, in almost all cases, unless there's a, a voice that's being re- received by a pair of human ears, that's true, really what's required for a real conversation. We're almost out of time, and I would love for you to share maybe one or two more ways that we can become better conversationalists and listeners. So I would say, you know, they just had a research study that came out just a few months ago um, that showed that your enjoyment of a conversation goes up as the amount you talk goes down, meaning that you enjoy conversations more when you talk less. So I would say that's number one is start. I'm not telling you talk less. I'm just saying start to be aware of how often you share equal time. And, you know, one of the reasons I give people the exercise of playing catch is because playing catch requires that you literally have an evil, even balance between how often you catch and how often you throw. But the second reason I use it would lead me to the second tip, which is when you're playing catch, you let go quickly. You don't hold on to the ball and be selfish with it because then the game kind of ends. But we do that when we're conversing. We sort of, once we get the ball, we abuse someone else's patience by holding on to it for too long. That's brilliant. (laughs) So the game of catch is sort of a perfect metaphor for me is A, share time and B, don't hog the ball. Which goes back to like kindergarten rules, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty simple. (laughs) It is. It is very simple. And, you know, we think we look at like Sesame Street and we think, oh, look, that's how children learn. They learn through constant engagement and constant interactivity. Nope. That's how humans learn. So if you're trying to teach someone, don't just talk at them, engage them, give them a chance to respond, give them a chance to inter, interact and intersect and uh, contribute. That's how human beings learn. Mm. Celeste, what are you working on now? So I have another book coming out uh, next year um, from a division of Random House, and that one is on our obsession with efficiency and productivity and how it's be- and hard work and how it's become toxic and sort of bled into all areas of our life until uh, we need to stop. <laughs> will, you, will you come back and talk about that with me, please? Absolutely. Oh my yeah. gosh. I'm, I'm excited about that. To learn more about Celeste Headley's work, please head on over to her website, www.celesteheadley.com. On Twitter, she can be found at Celeste Headley. And Facebook is Celeste period Headley. And Instagram is Celeste Headley. The book we've been speaking about today is We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter. And I urge you all to run out and buy it and start talking to your barista. Celeste, thanks for hanging out with me. My pleasure. Here comes that pause. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. are back, continuing our conversation about learning to grow vital relationships through conversations that matter. My next guest is Ronald J. Frederick. 
He has devoted his career to the practice and teaching of the transformational power of emotional and relational experience. As a clinical psychologist, he studies the neuroscience of emotion and interpersonal connection, drawing on both evidence-based research and attachment theory to offer clients proven strategies for overcoming fear of intimacy and emotional distress to grow deeper and more meaningful relationships. He's the author of Loving Like You Mean It, Use the Power of Emotional Mindfulness to Transform Your Relationships. And Ron is in the house. I am so excited to talk with you about the context of loving like you mean it. Many of us say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know how to love. I know how to be in relationship. But you're talking about something on a deeper level. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm excited to be here, Lisa. Thanks for having me. (laughs) It is a pleasure, Ron. Let's talk about mindfulness in this context, because mindfulness is such a buzzword these days. We think about mindfulness meditation. We think about, you know, eating a raisin and taking 10 minutes to do it. But really what you're talking about is on a deep level, practicing, you know, deeper reflection and non-reactivity. Exactly. You know, you just made a comment about um, a lot of us think, you know, oh, we know how to do relationships. And, you know, a fair amount of us do. And then a fair amount of us really struggle in relationship. And the reason for that, in part, is because we have faulty uh, relationship software. (laughs) What do I mean by that? Sort of in a nutshell, our earliest experiences in life, uh, when we come into the world with our caregivers, really lays down uh, this foundational software that tells us everything about how relationships go and who we are. Are we lovable? Are Are we worthy? And what can we expect in our relationships from Our partners, uh, are they going to be reliable? Are they going to be there for us? And depending on how our early experience goes, all this information gets wired in. And for those of us who had, you know, grew up in families, we're not necessarily talking about trauma, but grew up in families where, um, who with parents who were maybe not emotionally mindful or had their own things going on um, in different ways. That all gets coded into our brain and it's stored implicitly, which means um, basically like software, we operate without really thinking about it. If the software isn't so great, that's where we start to run into problems in relationship. We may feel anxious. We may feel insecure. We may have a hard time being emotionally open. We may have a hard time trusting our feelings. Um, trusting the other, trusting ourselves. And that stuff is like playing in the background and it's actually activating our nervous system and causing us to have to react, to perceive things in certain ways. And that's just how it goes. Now, if it's working on our behalf, that's great. But if it's not, what do we do to try and turn that around? Because the the reality is, you know, it, it's just our software. It's not really who we ultimately are. Well, hang on one second, Ron. Let me just jump in here because I want to give a bit more concrete example of about okay. attachment theory and attachment okay. styles because many of us have a tape running. You know, we repeat the same kind of relationships with the same kind of partners that we were raised by. Exactly. 
So right. talk a little bit, if you would, just about those those differences, because I think if people hear the different styles, they may recognize themselves in them. Okay. So there are people who have a secure attachment style, and those are folks who have an easy time in relationships. And we're talking about more of those of us who have an insecure attachment style. Um, the primary insecure attachment styles are one, um, uh, avoidant, so avoidant, insecure. The other is uh, anxious or anxious preoccupied. These are the dominant, uh, the two main um, attachment styles. And then there's another one that's called fear, fearful avoidant. And as you could imagine, and someone who has an avoidant attachment style, we um, have a hard time with closeness. Uh, we tend to um, not be mindful of our feelings. What we do is we deal, but we don't feel, which is a term I oh. get. From, yeah, that I get from <laughs> Diana Fosha, who developed the therapy AEDP that I practice, which means we may take action or we may back away. We do things to deactivate our emotional experience. And hence, we get something that's called avoidant. So I might shut down. I might have feelings but not say anything. I might immerse myself in my work as, in a way, it's sort of a distraction. The other style is anxious, uh, preoccupied. And for, for those of us who have this attachment style, we have more anxiety about the relationship. Uh, we think about it more. We worry about it more. We feel more conflicted in some ways. What we do, we feel, but we don't actually deal. So we have a lot of feelings, but we may feel conflicted about them, or we may be able to afraid to share them, or we may react in ways where we're more critical, we lash out, when in fact underneath we feel afraid or underneath we're feeling vulnerable. So um, we're feeling a lot, but we're not necessarily really, really in touch with what's going on emotionally for us inside. So when we talk about how the neuroscience explains this, you go back to the software programming, right? That that, exactly. is, it, that that therein lies the rub, right? We become used to or habituated to this form of um, interpersonal relationships, and that's the tape that keeps replaying. Exactly. You know, I mean... To just give you an example, like, you know, what kinds of things we're talking about. So baby is born, caregiver is there, mother, father. The caregiver perhaps maybe struggles with depression or anxiety, has their own attachment style, um, really, which we all do. Um, maybe they're not uh, necessarily reliable. They show up at times emotionally and then other times, maybe they're distracted. And we're not talking about, you know, sort of within the average range, because everyone gets distracted at times. But something that's a little more that happens repeatedly, baby starts to get, you know, that you're not necessarily going to be there for me. And what do I need to do to get your attention? Well, maybe baby cries or gets angry or um, uh, acts out in a certain way. And sure enough, mom or dad starts to pay more attention. Well, how does that get coded in? That gets coded in. One, I can't just simply cry and get your attention or you don't see my fear and respond to me. And I have to act in these certain ways. Well, guess what? Those are fundamental lessons that we carry forward without even knowing it. And when we 
strive to break free of these patterns, it first requires an awareness that what we're doing is no longer serving our highest good. True. Now, my experience, my own experience was one that it started to dawn on me pretty early on that I was having problems, although I wasn't so sure what was contributing to them. That's what eventually got me into therapy. But it was a long road until I landed with a therapist who could really help me see what was going on. But more often than not, people who come to see me for therapy, this is the thing that they're leading with. I don't know why I'm having problems, but I keep having these problems in relationship. And they're educated. They're uh, aware. I mean, there's something that brings them to the therapist's office. So it's not like they're they're not uh, have, have no level of awareness or discernment whatsoever. True. But I mean, you <laughs> probably hear this all the time that, you know, our relationships for many of us are the main, you know, uh, story in our lives. <laughs> and yeah. people are talking about the ways in which they, you know, struggle at times. And when we when we say struggle, it may mean that we operate just fine in our daily living, the way we show up for our jobs. But maybe there's this gnawing, unsatisfied element to life or a low level unhappiness. Right. I mean, it can show up in dramatic ways. We can have conflict in a relationship. We can butt heads. We can feel very alone in a relationship. We can not feel in sync. And then there are times where or, or you know, situations or relationships where just something doesn't feel quite like we're doing it or things are good in general, but something feels like it's missing on some level. And this brings us to the why or the how. What can we do about it? You know, uh-huh. how do right. we how do we overcome? And w- what I like about the title of your book, Loving Like You Mean It, to me, it's not just about the loving in relationship with another, but the the self-love that is required through being aware and inquisitive as to how we got where we got where we are. Oh, this is such an important point, And I'm really glad that you bring it up, because oftentimes what people do, what we do is we focus on the other, right? So yeah. if my, you know, wife, husband, spouse, uh, partner were just to be different or to were to do this or that. <laughs> if only. I'm laughing. Like, <laughs> if only. Now, that may be true on some <laughs> level. I'm sure there are some things. But what we sometimes don't see is that Again, if you just keep in mind that this stuff is all sort of implicitly generated, we don't see how our nervous system is getting activated. And we don't see that we're just, you know, falling into patterns that are programmed. We think this is just who I am and this is what I do. And, you know, therein lies the rub. Like, you know, when when somebody else might change, but does that actually change what's going on inside of us? And it really starts with learning how to be more attuned to what's getting activated in our nervous system, how our old wiring is showing up. What I talk about in Loving Like You Mean It is becoming aware of our own being triggered when our old stuff is triggered. And that shows up 
um, in two ways. One is that we feel uncomfortable or anxious. We may not be aware of that. And the other is that we get defensive because when we're anxious or we feel afraid in some way, our primitive system kicks in and we defend. That may be, may be that we get argumentative or we lash out or we do things like shut down, pull away, not talk. And that's what's going on inside of us. So if we're not mindful of that, then we're operating with a faulty system. And no matter what, you know, our partners do, we're still going to have problems. So this is really about loving like you mean it is really, really about how can we bring our most mindful self to our relationships. This doesn't mean that we don't have problems. It doesn't mean that we don't get triggered or activated at times. But it, it, it's about learning how to really be a good steward of our nervous system so that we can show up in a more integrated way and deal with whatever is there that needs to get dealt with in a way that's both helpful to ourselves and to the other person. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to continue the conversation with Dr. Ron Frederick to learn more about his work and the book, Loving Like You Mean It, Use the Power of Emotional Mindfulness to Transform Your Relationships. Please visit www.cfcliving.com. And on Facebook, that page is CFC Living. Here comes the break. We'll be right back and that is a guarantee who says money can't buy happiness whether you are a skeptic or seeker check out lisa's new book are we happy yet eight keys to unlocking a joyful life a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at barnes and noble amazon indiebound and harvestinghappiness.com here's a truth bomb emotions are contagious and happiness is a universally desired state but we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this episode and go back and listen again, because we're talking about learning to grow vital relationships through conversations that matter. Let's return to the conversation with my guest, Ronald J. Frederick. So, Ron, in the prior segment, we were talking about really what it means to be loving towards the self in awareness that then serves our relationships and the use of mindfulness towards our emotions rather than the world externally is mm -hmm. very, very powerful, right? Many of us are taught to be, you know, mindful of everything that is external, mm -hmm. but then turning it internally can sometimes be challenging and scary. Yeah, right. Well, but here's the, here's the deal, which is the way that we connect, well, basically the way that we connect with another is through our emotional experience. That's why they're there. 
They're giving us a lot of information and they're also communicating a lot of information. Being able to be mindful of our emotional experience and work with them is really the key to having a better relationship. So we take the idea of mindfulness and I put a particular onus on our emotional experience and our emotion, our emotions show up inside of us. They're felt. That's why they're called feelings. So that's where our attention needs to go. And when we talk about strategies for creating open and vulnerable, intimate engagement, you have a, a four-part process that does this, that, right. can, that can open the portals for this. Right, exactly. So the four steps are all about how we ultimately uh, cultivate emotional mindfulness. And the first step, what we start with is recognize a name. And recognize a name is about recognizing and naming when uh, we're getting triggered, when a button is getting pushed, when our old wiring snaps into place and we are getting uncomfortable, uh, feelings are coming up for us and we're responding in a defensive way. So we need to be able to, one, notice what's going on inside of us, and two, if we're not aware of what's going on inside of us, pay attention to our behavior because our behavior is going to tell us something. The second step is stop, drop, and stay. And this is probably one of the most important parts. I mean, once first you notice what you're doing, how do we start to work with what's going on inside of us in a different way that will ultimately benefit us? Well, we need to stop, we need to slow down, we need to drop. What does that mean? Our attention goes inward to our emotional experience, to our bodies, to what's happening inside of us. So we focus in internally and we try and stay with that. So like you said, Lisa, that sounds scary. And in fact, it can feel anxiety provoking. But again, if we don't lean into our experience, then it's always going to have the upper hand. And the truth of the matter is, the more we do this, the more we practice it, the more we stop, drop and stay and go inside, it gets easier. And our feelings become clearer. We start to hear the voices that are coming up for us from our past. We can start to learn to attend to ourselves in a different way, listen to ourselves with more compassion, listen in and hear the wisdom of what's going on that our emotions are communicating to us. And then step three is to pause and reflect. So once we've gotten in touch with our experience, and that may mean that it's become crystal clear what's happening for us, and it may not. It may just mean that we notice that we're afraid or we notice that we're feeling ashamed or we notice that we're feeling some other feeling and maybe we have more work to do over time, this is what we find out when we pause and reflect, which is step three. So we reflect on what did I just experience? What was happening for me? What really are my needs? What if I were to be more honest with myself and my partner? What do I need from them? Or what do I need to express? And that becomes clearer through re reflection. So experience is a lot, but we also need to reflect on it. And in that space, um, we then start to see a path or we figure out a path forward, how we can mindfully relate with our partners. And that's step four. So there's the internal work. 
And then we're wanting to connect in some way. We're wanting, we're needing to address something in some way. And how can we do that in a mindful way? And we can use all the skills that we learn through all the different steps to help regulate ourselves, to slow ourselves down, to notice when we're starting to get defensive, to uh, maneuver in different ways so that we can um, try and stay more open and in the process. So and that takes it. Go ahead. So I was just, I want to jump in here because I, I want to be the devil's advocate and pose the question, what happens when we perceive our partner as being an emotional Neanderthal? And we're the ones that attracted that person to begin with, you know? Well, <laughs> that often happens, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> because this is how it goes. Now, you know, we used to say, well, you know, you choose someone, um, the psychoanalytic, you know, theory was you choose someone so that you we can, do. Master, you know, yeah, but here's the, here's the thing, Lisa, we choose people because our nervous system meshes with them in some way. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not conscious. It's not like this, like, you know, um, fantastical sort of like, you know, mythology playing itself out. It really is physiological. Here's where neuroscience comes in. Your nervous system is shaped by the nervous system, by the people that you're raised by. So what does that mean? You have like a fit and we end up picking people who fit in a certain way. But here's the deal. Here's the good news. Guess what? Your nervous system, your brain, the wiring, it's not um, all written in stone. Um, Thank God. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it can be changed. And it's changed through the ways that I'm talking about here. It's changed through being mindful and disentangling ourselves. So, okay. So then your partner is like got their own stuff. This doesn't mean that we do our own work and then our everything falls into place. And we discovered that our partner was fine all along. They have their own stuff, too. It's really how we navigate that. And now, what I have found is that when we start to manage ourselves differently, sometimes things can soften with the other. Sometimes it causes some difficulties. Sometimes it can be experienced as a change, which can feel threatening to the other person. But really what we're trying to do is show up in a way that we can express ourselves that ultimately is, one, going to honor our truth, and two, the other person's going to be better able to hear us. So if we're not shutting down, but we're actually leaning forward and communicating, um, that creates a bridge. If we're not lashing out or saying something critical or snarky, but we're showing up and saying, actually, you know, for example, uh, this is uh, an example from my own relationship. So I might relationship experience. So I grew up in a family that there was a lot of bickering and lashing out. And this was part of attachment styles gone amok, basically. <laughs> and, you know, when my nervous system gets activated, part of how I respond to that is was or if I'm not in a good place or working at this, could be to be critical or to say something negative. So if my um, husband, who can be a little more avoidant, doesn't respond and I'm trying to connect with him, that can get my anxiety to start to increase in some level. It's very different experience. 
one, if I say, you know, what's going on and are you going to just sit there with like, you know, look on, that look on your that face. puss, yeah. <laughs> right? Or, you know, is there anybody home inside? Or I say, you know, when you don't respond, I find myself starting to feel anxious that, you know, maybe you're upset with me or, and that creates a different opportunity. Yeah. The languaging, the tone and the attitude with which we present. Right. But, and it's, but, you know, here's the thing, you know, we can learn the language that's helpful, but if we're not managing our own um, activation inside, it becomes very hard. There is a space actually between stimulus and response. Something happens and we respond. And what we're really trying to do is stretch that space in between stimulus and response so that we can free ourselves up to be able to do things differently. My guest today has been Dr. Ron Frederick. The book we're speaking about is Loving Like You Mean It. Use the power of emotional mindfulness to transform your relationships. To learn more about Dr. Ron Frederick, please visit his website, cfcliving.com. And on Facebook, that page is CFC Living. Ron, thanks for joining me on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Oh, well, this is good stuff. This is really good stuff. Very self-empowering to heal. Thank you. And gain the intimacy that we all desire with our relationships. We all do. It's the most important thing. It is. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen along with my guests, Celeste Headley and Ronald J. Frederick, wishing you kind thoughts, kind words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.